0: After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in, in, with, in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, to the Lamb. And all the angels standing around the throne, and, the, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and honor and thanksgiving uh, and, and power might, uh, and might, be, might to our God forever and ever. Amen. All right. Good afternoon and welcome. Um, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors. Great to have you here for our last week in ReChurch. Uh, it's been great to dig into the scriptures to look at uh, the vision that God has for his church. Consider what this means for us at City Light. The first week we looked at Matthew 28 and what that means for our church generally and and our missional communities that we're organized into here at City Light. Uh, The second week we looked at what it means to be disciples of Jesus and how it is that we grow in community. We're not meant to be just individuals on on our own. And last week we looked at our our family identity, that, that God calls his church a family and calls us to be like a family to one another. And so this last week, uh, we finish off with mission. And we're looking at how, how it is that as a church, as a larger gathered church, and as smaller missional communities here at City Light, uh, we're going we're to do mission. We're going to reach people who don't yet know Jesus and show them the grace and hope and joy that is in Christ. And we start with a passage uh, this afternoon that is right at the end of Scripture, at the very last book called Revelation, And we're looking at the end point where all of this is heading according to the Word of God. And the question we're asking is, if this is the inevitable end that all of history is heading towards, how does that impact us now? I wonder if you've ever thought through that question. If you knew that something was absolutely inevitable, how would it affect your behavior now? I remember years ago when... uh, When I used to skate every now and then, we we always skated, we generally skated high schools, but to get there, because we had no transport, you'd skate there. And there were some schools in particular that the way to get there was to basically cover a series of hills. And inevitably, there was always one hill that was, that basically you took your life in your own hands. Um, But it was always good to head down first. And uh, I know that seems odd because you think like it's often better to see how other people go, but the reason it was good to head down first was because if anyone else got destroyed, you would have the box seat to to see it happen. And the best thing about it is if you know anything about skating, you'll know that you can see it from a long way out. Because what will happen is as someone's charging down the hill and starting to get a bit of speed, it starts with a small wobble. But as it gets bigger, if they don't recover within the first few, it's over. And you can see people's faces go through almost like the whole grief cycle within like... (laughs) a couple of seconds, they start with denial, thinking, I can, I can pull this back in, I can recover, I can get it. And as it's getting worse, then you see the grief and the shock. And then you, and then you see my favorite stage, which is acceptance. And acceptance <laughs> looks different for different people. But often, guys would just panic. So they'd do crazy things like jump off, leading with their bum, and, they'll just, and grind their way down the hill. There was others who would flip off and lose pretty much their whole shirt and be torn off. And I know it doesn't sound funny, but as a teenage boy, it's hilarious, right? And to see your mates do it was the best. But it was funny because you you would notice it with different people that once they realised that it was inevitable, it really affected the way they acted. But I wonder if you think about more significant things than just bombing hills and how it impacts us. For example, how would it impact you... If you're single and looking to be married, how would it impact you if you knew who you were going to marry? Would it cause you to step back a bit or would it cause you to date aggressively, aggressively is probably not the right word for dating, but like, (laughs) would it cause you to just, you know, be looking and hunting knowing that it's finally going to happen or something like that? Or or if you're on a sporting team, if you knew you were going to win the final, would it cause you to pull back from training or would it cause you to train even harder knowing that your efforts would be worthwhile? Well, more significantly, if you think about a particular historical event, how did it impact people during the war? During the Second World War, there was a day called D-Day. On June 6, 1944, when the Allied forces landed on Normandy, they knew that basically it was going to come down to this. If they took Normandy, the war was done with and they'd be set and the Germans would, would have to retreat. The Russians were already encroaching on the eastern side and if they were to take Normandy, that would be it for them. And they did, and from then on in many ways, the war was a foregone conclusion. But here's the strange thing. Over the next year, millions of people continued to to enlist in the army, even unconscripted. Why did they do that? If victory was virtually inevitable, why would you sign up? Well, the thought was for many, it didn't encourage passivity, but it encouraged activity. The fact that the end of the war was near moved people to say, I want to be a part of it. I want to make it happen. I know someone has to do it and I want to be a part of it and amongst it. Is this what you think when you read Revelation 7? If you're a follower of Jesus, as you consider the vision of Revelation 7 when God will finally gather all of his church for all of time before him and there'll be people there from every tribe, nation and tongue, does it make you think, knowing that that is going to happen, I want to be a part of it. I know that God will build his church, but sign me up, count me in, I want to be a part of it. Because if not, I think something's gone wrong in our understanding of the gospel. And I want want us to see two things today from this particular text that we look at in Revelation 7. One, is the enormity of that day that is to come. And two, how that's going to impact us as a church community, as a group of people who follow Jesus and claim to follow him as Lord. And so I'm going to pray that he would do that this afternoon. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are infinitely good and worthy of worship. We praise you that you love us with an everlasting love. We praise you that you are the one who is building your church, that you are calling people from all over the globe to yourself. We praise you that you have set a day when you will right every wrong, where you will set justice forever, and where you will finally gather your people together in safety forever. And Father, we pray as we consider the enormity of that day, as we look at Revelation 7, that you would move our hearts to compassion and to love, that we might witness for Christ with all we have before the appointed time when you take us home. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, Revelation is an interesting book. It's written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' closest apostles. And the understanding is that this is most likely very late in his life. This is probably around AD 90, and he is the last surviving apostle. So that means he has watched 10 of his friends die for their faith in Jesus, not the least of whom was his brother, James, who was the first to be executed for following Christ. Now that's a heavy burden to bear. He's a man who's seen a lot in his time. But what he's seen most of all is he's seen the church grow, as Jesus said it would, and spread throughout the region, from Jerusalem out to Judea to Samaria, and then right through the Roman Empire. But not only has he seen that, he's also seen persecution increase. He's seen Christians thrown to lions. He's seen Christians lit up as human torches for the entertainment of the emperor. He's seen all kinds of horrendous things, and at this point in his life, he's been exiled to an island in the Mediterranean called Patmos, and he is writing a letter to the churches. And we're told in the first chapter of this book that this book fits into three different kind of types of literature that we find in the Bible. We're told that it's a letter to the churches, which you'd call an epistle. It's the Greek word. Uh, we, we're told that it's also a prophecy, meaning that it's a specific word from God to his people at a specific time. And we're also told that it's apocalyptic. Now, if you don't know what that is, apocalyptic is a type of writing in the Bible that's full of well, pretty unfamiliar images to us, but that would have been pretty familiar to people in the ancient Near East but images and symbols and metaphors and numbers and all of these things that are meant to communicate to God's people things that are going to happen in the future. And it's for this reason that you may have encountered some people who love the book of Revelation on town hall steps with a bullhorn and a quiver full of pamphlets about the end of the world. And I don't know crazy people just love this book and get stuck right into it, but it's mostly because it contains so many different images and metaphors. But if you pay attention to what it's saying, the message of the book is quite clear. The church is under fire, they're under persecution, and John is saying to them, this is what's going to happen in the future, and this is why you can trust Jesus with everything. And the part that we come to in chapter 7 fits into a little couple of chapters where we've just found out what's going to happen in the future. There's a passage in in chapter 6 where John is told that what's going to happen in the future is that there is going to be warfare and it comes in the symbol of four horses. You might have seen it parodied in different sort of shows or movies, but the four horsemen of the apocalypse comes from this section of the Bible. And the idea is that the first one that comes is a white horse, and it represents conquerors who seek to expand their empires by war. And then what follows is the red horse that represents bloodshed, and then what follows after that is the black horse that represents starvation and depravity. And what comes after that uh, is the the pale horse or the sickly green horse that represents death and what Jesus is saying to his church is emperors who are seeking to expand their empires will bring warfare and that will bring bloodshed and, and, uh, and starvation and depravity and death and he's saying but I'm with you and that's where we get to this little section here in Revelation chapter 7 after hearing that war is going to come and not just for the people who are in the first century, but for many of the centuries to come, as we've seen over and over again. It says, though war is going to come, don't worry, because Jesus is coming too. And then we get this image in Revelation chapter 7, sentences 9 to 12, and it will come up on the screen for you as I read it. It says, As I looked, after this I looked, rather, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, So there is this great multitude standing before the throne. And he says it's a number two. Like if you look out over the crowd, don't bother counting them. There are so many people there. And he says every tribe, nation, and tongue are represented. This is the people, all the people of God from all of time. He has gathered them together. And they're standing in white. Not because that's the fashion of the day and the future. He's not trying to be particularly futuristic. The, the metaphor of white in the book of Revelation means two things. It means victory because they have finally overcome death and they've been set free. But it also means purity, because they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, as it says there. They've been forgiven all their sin. They've been washed completely clean. And so they are standing there and they are praising God. I remember really clearly when I was a little kid, I was probably in year one, I asked my mum, she was a Christian, I said, um, when we go to heaven, and that's not really theologically true we don't go to heaven we see in the book of revelation that actually god is coming to us but give it i was only in year one give me a break um but um i so said when we go to heaven what um what will we do there and my mom said we'll we'll sing praises to god and in my head so i was kind of smiling and said oh cool but in my head i was like oh great <laughs> like that's it forever like i couldn't imagine singing songs for more than a few minutes let alone eternity i'm like is that well, that is going to be a struggle, right? But it's understandable because, as a seven year old kid, it, it is the case that, in the scope of an eight year old, seven year old kid's imagination, you probably don't have room to understand that there could be a being that is so good and so glorious that even just standing before him would evoke praise forever. That there would be a being that good. And yet, that is the whole claim of Scripture. That God is that good, that actually the people, when they stand before him, he's not standing there saying, sing me songs of praises, now another one, and another, same one, how great is our God, love that one, again, right? (laughs) That's not what's happening here. The people are standing there, and it's almost involuntary. As they behold God, they're just yelling out at the top of their voice, praise be to God. They're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. They are overwhelmed to be in his presence. Why? Because they're standing before the most holy God. They're now safe. Many of them who died, it is saying, who were martyred for their faith are now standing before God in His presence and they cannot believe it because God is holy. That means that He cannot stand sin and yet these sinners are standing there clean and before Him, praising Him. I don't know how you found we're reading through Scripture together as a church and we're up to Leviticus And that's a book of the Bible that has a lot of laws in it. It's just laws, you know, cleanliness laws followed by other kind of stipulations and more and more and more. And it's just chapter after chapter. And the idea is that, you know, God is holy, so you have to do this. God is holy, make sure you do this. And you're like, we get it, we get it. But maybe the reason he has to go on and on about it is because we don't get it. And maybe the reason he has to do it chapter after chapter after chapter is because we don't get it. We hear that God's holy and we're like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 I get that, sure, sure, sure. Be saying, no, no, you don't. And they have all these procedures in the Old Testament where you couldn't just enter the presence of God. You had to go through all these we'd call safety procedures almost just to get there because it's dangerous to enter the presence of God because He is holy. If you were an airplane pilot, I presume you wouldn't find it boring to understand the entirety of that you know, panel of switches and buttons that are in front of you because if you don't, someone might die. It's important that an air pilot understand all the procedures in detail. I think the book of Leviticus is just that. It's going through in detail the safety procedures that you have to take before you enter the presence of God because he is that holy and we are that sinful. And yet here, these people are standing before him just amazed because they are standing before the holy God for all of time. And to give you maybe just one small sense of the kind of the feeling that they, they might be overwhelming the church in this, in this part of Revelation 7, I think the closest we can get to it is this. If you've ever been to an observation tower or um, kind of like a high-rise building that has a section where you can walk out on a glass floor, you'll know there's a particular sensation that comes with that. That if you, if you walk out and it's 30 stories up and you step onto that glass... You, you feel a surge of adrenaline as you do it. Presume most normal people do anyway, because as you do it, you're expecting. Look, glass is normally fragile. You don't step on it. How's it going to bear my weight? If I don't, it's certain death. And as you do, there's kind of this thrill that overcomes you. And the thrill is this: the idea that you know that gravity is pulling you towards the ground, and you should die, and yet you're not. You're alive, suspended over it, as though you were flying. And there's this sense of fear and wonder that overcomes you at the same time. I imagine that's what the church is feeling as they stand before God. They're looking, they're beholding God full face, thinking this is the God who is holy, who should break out against us. And yet he's not. We are here and safe in his presence. And they're praising him for it. They can't help it. They're not being made to sing. They can't help but sing. It's almost an involuntary reaction. And they praise him and praise him and praise him. And we get this incredible vision of what is going to finally happen when God gathers his people together and he wipes away every tear from every eye. They are done with suffering. They are done with death. They are done with warfare. All of that is finished. Everything they have suffered is behind them and now they stand in the presence of God to enjoy him forever. And so here's the question then. As you read Revelation 7, as you get some kind of even minute sense of what's going on here, how does it make you feel? Does it make you feel like, I want to be a part of that? I want to see as many people there on that day through my efforts as possible, as much as God would allow. Do you find it hard to believe? Does it awaken hope in you? Do you think not much about it? Because the response should be from us, and knowing that that day is certain, I want to be about it. That's what I want to give my life over to, just seeing people there on that last day rejoicing in Jesus. But here's the sad thing. If I'm honest, when I wake up in the morning, that is not the first thing on my mind. When I wake up in the morning, I lose sight of this. My main concern is how much sleep I did or didn't get or what kind of things or responsibilities I have to take care of that day. It is very rarely that I wake up if ever, with that kind of eternal mindset. I don't naturally think that way. I naturally think about myself and my own worries and concerns. Even just to give you an example of it, over this week, we headed away to a conference uh, up at the Gold Coast. It was an Acts 29 conference on missions and great preachers and, uh, and bands up there as, um, as we were heading up. But um, as we got up there, to the, so this is on the Gold Coast, which, by the way, if you if you're not familiar with the Gold Coast and you just want to get a bit of a picture in your mind, think about if Sydney was just one giant RSL. That's, um, that's pretty much what the Gold Coast looked like, and we were on Surfer's Paradise, or, as it's sort of known, the NRL Players Paradise. And it really was, because Gavin, Gavin and I saw NRL players on the way up and the way back, so I'm not even joking. Um, but um, the, the Gold Coast is actually, it's actually a pretty incredible place. Like, in terms of natural beauty, I mean, the beach there at Surfer's is pretty amazing. It's huge... Flat, beautiful sand, the, the water is mint condition, it's 25 degrees, it's actually pretty amazing. But in the midst of that, rather than being thankful, I started to get mopey. On the first day, Mel, my wife, got sick, both of us were starting to come down with something, so I we went to bed early. The next night, she was so crook, she went to bed at like 6pm. Also, Queensland, because they won't toe the line with the whole daylight savings thing, everything was earlier. So instead of our kids getting up at six, they got up at five, and because it was holidays, they got up even earlier. Harper decided to get up at four a.m. and that was it; she was done for the day. Then I started to get sick and came down really crook. I was, um, you know, had uh, how do I put it delicately, just toilet, you know, problems, and um, and so that was, you know, very uncomfortable and whatnot. And, uh, and by, the, by the third day of it, I was just, I was getting so mopey and just all about myself. I was waking up just thinking like, oh, we're so looking forward to this week and now it's a bummer. And even on the last day, I even, I don't, I'm not even kidding, this is what I thought. I was walking Harper, it was 4am and I saw a coffee shop. I was like, oh, that'd be good to check out later. And then so about 7am, three hours into the day, um, we went back there and had coffee and it was good. And as I was drinking, I was like, oh i had to find a good coffee place on the last day like, and i was i was genuinely annoyed about that and i was just getting so kind of wrapped up in myself that when, when we were going to like a, a supermarket to buy something the, the woman at the counter said um knowing that we were kind of pouring out of this conference she was like hey you're a religious group and i was so kind of 16 feet inside myself with my own concerns that i was almost too much on the back foot to really respond properly And I kind of fumbled and said, um, yeah, we are, it's like a group of churches and then didn't really engage with her and kind of went on. And not only that, but again, when I was on the plane on the way home, I I had my Bible open and later a guy next to me um, said, hey, did you have your Bible open before? I was like, yeah, I did. He said, I've got a few favorite verses and started sharing. And I almost just didn't know how to respond because I was so busy just thinking about myself and what I was about and almost feeling sorry for myself. It's almost like that week, God could have sent someone up to me to grab me by the collar and say, good sir, what must I do to be saved? And I would have been like, oh, I would tell you, but I only found a good coffee shop today, so I'm just, you know, just spit down and whatnot. And it's insane. It's insane. I do it all the time. My natural inclination and probably yours is just to self-concern. We don't wake up with an eternal mindset on our heart and mind. So what are we going to do? As a church, how are we going to respond to the truth? If we claim that this is true, that Scripture is not just a book, but it's God's Word, and this day is inevitable, that as sure as we are breathing today, there will be a day when God gathers His church before them from every tribe, nation, and tongue, how are we going to be a part of it? How are we going to be a part of it? Well, this is what we're going to do. There are a couple ways in which, as a church, we can reach those around us. And one of the first ones is is something you may be familiar with and may not have heard it by this title, but there's what you would call come and see kind of mission. And come and see mission is where you invite people to come and see the church as we gather. The Sunday gathering would be the classic example. In fact, the next series, as we look at Ecclesiastes, will be a great time to invite people to come and see the church as we engage with God's word and as God's word answers uh, questions that our culture is asking. I mean, even for, the, for next week on our fourth birthday, Jacob's going to be speaking on the first passage from Ecclesiastes and really engaging with this idea. We all know that life is short, that we are finite, and that life is slipping away from us and death is coming. And the two main responses to that are denial or despair. And yet Ecclesiastes says, if you know God, then you can find joy in the chaos and confusion of life. And a week after week, we're going to be engaging with those kind of questions. It's going to be a great time to invite people who have questions that want answers that the Bible provides. And it provides profound answers that you'll find nowhere in, in our culture. And that's come and see mission, that week after week, even as we, this, this series takes us all the way through to Easter, I'd encourage you now, block out the Thursday night before Easter as we head down to the Balmain Town Hall. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be a great time to gather together. If you're heading away that weekend, just go on the Friday morning. It'll be a great time to invite and to gather as a church and invite people to come and see as this church community love one another and as we sit under the word of God. But those are our come and see ministries. There is another type of mission that we call go and be the church. And it's kind of like this, right? If you've ever seen Bondi Rescue, which again... Bit heavy intellectual, but, um, but if you can, you know, sort of mind through that. Um, the, the gist of the story each week, they always, they generally like have kind of the same sort of stories week after week, but there's inevitably a drowning tourist story, right? Every time, uh, it's, it's week after week. And you know what? The guys who, who do it are so patient, right? They don't seem to get that fed up with it, but week after week, there's always the same story. But what they'll have is there'll be a bunch of stories where people come to the tower because they've, they've been stung by like a what do you call it? Blue. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Our kids call them blue box jellyfish, which is like a real mashup. But um, what are they? blue bottles, that's what I'm trying to think of, right? So people who've had stings or injuries, right? They'll come to the tower and the life, lifeguards will kind of patch them up. But also, there'll be people who are drowning out in the surf that the lifeguards actually go out to and, and, and reach, right? And it's always the same way. Every sort of lifeguard setup is the same. They have stations where you can come to. And then they have lifeguards who are set to be mobilized to go out. And the reason for it is, for some types of injuries, the best thing to do is just to walk up to the tower and get it sorted out. But for other people who are in real danger and in no way can get there, they need people to go out to them. And the church is the same. There'll be some who are quite happy to walk through our doors and and just engage with what we're doing here. And if you're here and skeptical about Jesus and finding out, we love that you're here. Uh, We love that you're a part of this community observing what's going on. And many people have come to know Jesus just by joining us, speaking to real people here and understanding the gospel. But the truth is many are far from Jesus and there's no way they're going to walk in a church building. And that's where missional communities come into play. In, we are organized into missional communities at City Light because we hold that missional communities are a family and missionary disciples sent to make disciples. And over this year and over the past few weeks, we've been getting together as MCs trying to work out how is it that each missional community at City Light, we have 13 of them, could identify a a group or an area that they want to reach. Because missional communities can go and be the church where there is no church. Missional communities can go to every corner and crevice of our communities and reach people exactly where they're at. No matter what their preconceptions are about church, no matter how unwilling they are to come into a church building, it doesn't matter because we can go out and be the church among them. And so we're saying we want our MCs to be able to say, look, we're trying to reach this neighborhood or that gym or that pub or whatever it is, that we might be going and being the church. We might not just sit here and hope that people are going to keep walking in, but actually go and reach. And as we say that, you might be saying, well, that's, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. But straight away we think, well, how is my MC going to reach all my friends and family and everyone that I know? And the truth is they're not. It's not going to happen. In fact, if you think about it, there really are two types of mission. There's reactive and proactive. Reactive is when there are people in your life you just know, friends and family, you just want to love and serve and witness the gospel to, who have just come into your life. But proactive mission is when as a community you pray together and you intentionally say, let's go and be the church to those people. Let's go and reach out to that group of people. It's a prayerful and careful, by prayerful and careful design, not just by who happens to be around. And choosing a proactive mission for an MC, could be as simple as committing to a particular cafe or pub or place over and over again. It could be a people group, it could be a subculture, it could be whatever it is. But as missional communities, we want to go and be the church to people, to reach our culture, not just to wait and hope that many will come to us. And how are we going to do it? With MCs, we want to take stock. If you're here in a missional community, if you're not, this is great for you to know because this is where you're heading towards if you're looking to join City Light. Uh, But as MCs, we want to take stock of what's going on in your MC. Where does everyone live? Where does everyone recreate? Where does everyone eat? Is there any kind of crossover? Is there something that we could just pull together here? With our MC, we got to sit down this week, and we just listed out all the gifts that were in our missional community. And it was a great opportunity because you can't, name your own gifts so it was a great just love fest where everyone's like saying you're great at this and you're great at this and you know it was it was great right great to do really like upbuilding sort of time but the implication at the end of it which i think was pretty significant was we had this list of gifts in our group we were like there's an incredible amount of gifts in an incredibly small group of people that's a lot of blessing that we could pour out to a community around us if we were just to get together and to do something And so we want groups to do that, to take stock of where you live or your gifts, what it is and how it is that you might love and serve a group of people and show the gospel to them and speak the gospel to them and make disciples. But one kind of caveat or warning as we sort of go about this process together is this. The point of doing all that is not so that we'd be able to work out, all right, what's the path of least resistance? What's the combination that we can pull together where basically we can go and make disciples and it's not going to cost us any time, money or effort? That's not going to happen for the simple reason that when Jesus calls his disciples, he says to them, come and take up your cross and follow me. The invitation to follow Christ is the invitation to come and die. And it will take sacrifice. His call is not that that we won't miss out on anything. His call is that it's worth it. And when you consider Revelation 7 and that that's where all of history is heading towards, what effort made for Christ would not be worth it. And so that's what we're praying through. And those are the kind of risks we want to take as missional communities that we might reach people. So those are the first two ways that we're going to be a part of this mission that God is doing uh, here in this city and all over the world. That's come and see mission, then go and be. But the third one is God's global mission. Now, last year, we aimed at giving away 20% of our budget, and we almost hit it. And so we're going to go at that again, and you'll hear more about that at the budget night, which I know everyone's pumped about. (laughs) Um, but that is exciting, right? When, when we're talking about giving away money to organizations that are really changing and impacting and transforming lives, that is an exciting budget night, and so be there for that. Um, but this year, we wanted to go one step further. We connected with Open Doors last year to give away to them 5% of our budget, which was an incredible uh, act of generosity and grace within our community. But this year, we want to partner with them one step further. Later in the year... Most likely in August, depending on who's interested and when we're available, we're going to go on a mission trip to Indonesia. And the purpose of this trip is to love and serve the church that are there, but also to be loved and served and encouraged by the church that is there. Because the church that is there, in many places, is having a particularly hard time. Years ago, when I went to Indonesia, we went to an island called Sulawesi, and we met a bunch of Christians there from the south right up to the north in a region called Taraja. But there was not one Christian that we met who had not been touched by persecution, either in their immediate family, talking about people who were orphaned for the gospel, right through to a group, a small group, a Bible study that we met, who was now meeting in disparate parts of the city because they'd been infiltrated by a Muslim spy who had dobbed them into a local group and many of their members had been beaten or taken away. For them, the promises of Revelation are not idle. The threats and the concerns are not idle and the hope is just as real. And so we want to be a part of that mission and to know the church and to engage with the church and with God's global mission that it might spur us on to be faithful disciples in our own context but also to call us out of our own context and to think, is God calling people from this church to God's global mission? To leave everything from here and go to another context and to make disciples. Because the truth is, this is not some foolish or idiotic investment. If Revelation 7 is true, then the logical response for us would be to pour out our lives for the sake of the gospel. That is the logical response. We'll pour out our lives to see people come and see our church gather and to hear the gospel. We'll pour out our lives to go and be the church. And we'll pour out our lives to be a part of God's global cause and a part of what he's doing all over the world. The great uh, missionary Henry Martin said, If God has work for me to do, I cannot die. Church, God has work for us to do, and we are immortal until it is done. Let's pray that he would empower us by his spirit to do it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you, that you are sovereign over all that happens in the world, that there is not a single world event that you are not in complete control over. You love your people dearly and are calling them to yourself from all over the globe. And so, Father, we pray that as a church that you would send us out, that you would call us out to love and to serve people and to share the truth and the message of Jesus with them, that they may come to know the hope of salvation. We pray that as we do this, that you'd be with us and unifying us as a church and strengthening us, that we might be right witnesses in this world. But most of all, Lord, we pray that you'd be calling many sons and daughters to glory. And Father, we pray that as you do this, that we would know a deeper joy and peace in you than we ever have, and that you would be more glorified in this church this year than you were last, and again and again and again, until the appointed time when you decide to call us home. Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.